Beyond this door is two podcasters who are coming up with the intro for the Eye of the Beholder episode of The Twilight Zone. They racked their brains and were unable to come up with anything. So deal with it, because this one is hard. Eye of the Beholder Bagel Basket, go. Tear me apart, Lisa! Fourteen! Great birthdays without him! He never even sent me a damn card! Die with him! Because I'm Homer Simpson! Pizza, pizza, pizza! I'm so excited! I'm so excited! Hey, baby kid! Baby kid? It was time now. It was, was all the time I needed. <laughs> Welcome to Writer's Bagel Basket. I'm Scott Curl. I'm Dwight Stearns. This was so hard to come up with an opening. For the intro, yes. I it know. Was. Like I mean, it's it's easy to to talk about. I think what makes it hard to come up with for an intro is it's such a small episode, air quotes, because it all takes place in one spot, it, uh, one location, and it only central it it's focused around a like central like one single character and it's just a lot a lot of dialogue that's not necessarily memorable, but it's a good concept. Visually, this is like the most impressive one, uh, Twilight Zone, oh, okay. I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, Terry at 25,000 feet is pretty impressive with yep. it. But this was very impressive with like the camera angles mm-hmm. and how they cleverly like plot the black and white and make it. I mean, you know from the very beginning that something's up. Yeah. But it is gorgeously shot. Yeah, the shot composition is smart, and like the way that the camera tracks from like shot to shot, like not showing faces, is really well done. I told you this, but listeners, when I was little, I saw this when I was four, and this scared the bejeebas out of me. Not the not the pig face people, but the the woman actually in the the the, the bandages, mummy lady. because that always scared me. Because the only other time that I saw someone wrapped up in bandages was Sam Raimi's Dark Man. So I was terrified that underneath oh. was like she was missing teeth and she had no structural so integrity. Like, oh, oh, no. Now I get why you wanted to do a Dark Man thing for the opening. I follow you. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a little insight into me. That's, that's me. That's how I roll. <laughs> so this one, who picked this one? I don't know. It was this one might have been both of us because yeah. this is like another one of those like I think it was between fantastic the, this and to serve man yeah yeah this is like a just a classic episode every time I see the Twilight Zone marathons this episode is always in it I feel like uh, they always open with this one they never go in order mm-hmm. I feel like they, oh yeah they, they always jump around I I feel like they always open with this one and they always close with. But then there was time. <laughs> There's always time. Yeah. This one, I always loved visually, mm-hmm. as I said before. But I also loved the story. Like, yeah. this time at a young age that it doesn't matter what you look like. Unless well, you're mean, in a totalitarian you. society. Yeah, which I don't remember that aspect from when, I was, that. from when I was younger. Is that they were actually actively a part of like a dystopian future that where they are being controlled by like one great dictator, very Orwellian. Um, so why don't we actually talk about what we watched? So we watched The Eye of the Beholder this week. I think I don't even know if we've said that yet. I think we did. We, uh, you, At the we, end of last we, episode, we, we said did. it when you were doing Sterling. Yes. Okay, yes. Yeah. Um, so, but Eye of the Beholder is an episode of The Twilight Zone. I believe it's episode six of season two. 
Um, I also believe it's written by Rod Serling. For some reason, my internet's going really slow right now. Um, so I can't... Yeah, written by Rod Serling, uh, November 11th, 1960. So this episode's awesome. This episode is great. Uh, so her name is... Uh, I don't know if they Jill? ever say it. Janet. 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 Yeah, he says it. Tyler. Miss Tyler. <laughs> they call her Miss Tyler the entire Yeah, but episode. Serling at the beginning goes, huh, fade into Janet Tyler. On her 11th operation, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, opening narration. Suspended in time and space for a moment, your introduction to Miss Janet Tyler, who lives in a very private world of darkness. It's a universe whose dimensions are the size, thickness, length, and swath of the bandages that cover her face. Oh. In a moment, we will go back into this room, and also in a moment, we will look under those bandages, keeping in mind, of course, that we are not surprised, not to be surprised by what we see, for this isn't just a hospital, and this patient 307 is not just a woman. This happens to be the Twilight Zone, his and Miss Janet writing. Tyler with you is about to enter it. His so writing, beautiful. his writing is just so good. Yeah, I love him. Um, because he writes for everyone the way he would write for himself. Like mm. everyone, it's like Aaron Sorkin, where everyone is smart and has great dialogue, including, you know, Rod Serling. Yep. Because he's not just writing for himself. It's not like a Kevin Smith thing where Kevin Smith writes really pithy dialogue for himself. Yeah. Or, or it's kind of like a Joss Whedon where, like, everyone kind of sounds the same. Everyone has their quirky little quips and stuff like that. But it's really hard to get distinguished characters. When they're not characters, he's created himself. Like in the Avengers, everyone kind of sounds the same type of deal. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, the best example is the say what you will of Loki, but he is my brother and he's a Asgard. Yep. He killed 80 people. He's, he's adopted. adopted. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So but, it's very Joss Whedon. And and but, the the way they talk in here is kind of Joss Whedon, but it's also very intelligent. Um so Janet <laughs> has bandages and you said she's played by two different people. Uh yes. She is played by um Maxine Stewart, who is the person who was Janet Tyler when the bandages were on her face. So I think she also did the acting for it. She did the acting and the voice, but then once the bandages come off at the end, it's Donna Douglas, who was in um, Beverly Hillbillies. Miss Ellie Mae. Yep. However, Douglas had been listening to Stewart's voice as she recorded a part and was able to imitate her so successfully that she was allowed to speak the line on camera herself. So like, because she was originally not going to say anything after the fact, but she actually did once the bandages came off. Good for her. Yeah, I agree. Um... So the whole thing opens up with Janet is being talked to by the nurse who is silhouetted in darkness. Mm-hmm. And you just see the first time they did it, it was clever. And in the more the first time I watched it, I never really noticed it. You said the same yeah, thing. The, the first time I, I ever watched this, I didn't notice until the big reveal at the end that we hadn't seen the faces of, of the doctors or the nurses. And it's not. There are certain sequences where it's not that noticeable because they're, they'll be blocked by either they'll be in silhouette or like a um, actor will be blocking another one. So it feels more natural. The stuff at the beginning with the... Um, when they're in her room. When they're in her room and when they're dealing with the two nurses at the nurse station, that's when it felt the most obvious to me. That they were actively not trying to show faces. The, where it felt the obvious to me is um, most obvious to me mm-hmm. was when they're in the doctor's office. Oh, which part? When they're actually in, the nurse is talking to the doctor. Mm, okay, and, and he's his, like smoking the cigarette and stuff like that, and yeah, walking around. Yeah, when the when actually I thought that the stuff at the desk was better. Okay, because it was more artistic as a yeah, like because they were like zooming in on things and stuff. Yeah, okay. it was weird camera angles. So 
Janet thinks she's ugly. Like, Well, she doesn't just think she's ugly. Society has actively deemed her ugly. She doesn't look like anyone else. This is what we're told. She's a hideous lump of flesh and skeletal structure. Yeah. Um, that's what everyone else is referring to her as, more or less. And so she... From what we we gather, what because people are talking about it, that this is like a government mandated thing that she has to go in and try to have some sort of reconstructive surgery, or she, she's having injections and like pills to make herself try to look like everyone else. So it's universal healthcare, exactly. <laughs> but because she, for some reason, they were saying she can't have the surgery because apparently there is a surgery option. Yeah, they, but they she's, said that she it would destroy, it. Her, it would kill her. Yeah, it's hopeless, isn't it, doctor? I'll never look any differently. Well, that's hard to say. Up to now, you you haven't responded to the shots, the medications, any of the proven techniques. Frankly, you've stumped us, Miss Tyler. Nothing we've done so far has made any difference at all. However, we're we're very hopeful for what this last treatment may have accomplished. There's no telling, of course, till we get the bandages off. I'm sorry your case is not one that we could have handled with plastic surgery, but your bone structure, flesh type, many factors prohibit the surgical approach. Is what they said. And that's like the final option, Mm -hmm. like even after moving to a different society. Yeah. So, um, Janet, I almost said Janine. Close. (laughs) Janine Garofalo. Janet is begging to be like everyone else, mm-hmm. to look like everyone yep. else. She wants desperately to be normal. She doesn't even want to be beautiful, she said. She just wants to be normal. And wh- the thing that gets me in this episode, every time she goes, just put a bag over my head <laughs> or give me a mask, like, that kills me. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Like, Because, w- I mean, she just wants to be normal and be able to walk down the street and not be screamed at or, you know, pointed at and stuff like that. So it's it's sad. This this always reminds me of um, years ago. I heard a girl when we were at Fitchburg. A girl mm-hmm. said, "You guys never know how hard it is to be beautiful. It's such a plight to be beautiful and people to buy me drinks and ask me out on dates." I was like, "Oh, poor you!" <laughs> wow. <laughs> so oh, so this felt like the counter of that, where it's like, like you don't know how it feels to be ugly because yeah, that makes yeah. So, I what I loved about it is that they they do do the stereotype where everyone have you noticed that everyone who is um, beautiful mm-hmm. in quotes has brown hair, and everyone who is ugly kind of has like she has blonde hair, yes. but he has dirty blonde hair because it's yep. much lighter than everyone yep. else's. Yep, and so it's that whole if you have blonde hair and blue eyes, you're you're ugly, mm-hmm. and if you have brown hair and brown eyes, you are gorgeous. I never noticed this before when watching it. Minor spoilers for the end of the episode. Once they reveal everyone else's faces, I never noticed that they were identical. Yeah, I never realized that everyone looked exactly the same, which is another statement on like when everyone's the same, no one. When everyone's unique, no one's unique. Or type right, of deal. Yeah. Or whenever. Yeah, I don't know what I'm trying it, to say. It looks but, like a world of Stallones. Yeah. Like, so, um, <laughs> yeah. That's what I was waiting to say. Like, like everyone. Oh, hey, hey no, Adrian, no. get out of the way. She's ah. she's Um. So, the whole time she, it's two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. 
they have to wait two weeks to remove the bandages. Uh, it had been two weeks since the last surgery because we're like a day or two away from her, them taking it off at the beginning because she's like getting antsy. She's like, take them off, please. I just want to be done with this. I've lived my life in bandages, she when, said. When she begs the doctor to let her just go out into the sun and sit yep. with the trees and the flowers... This this is this might be the saddest episode of the Twilight Zone, in my opinion. It's up there. You're definitely up there. Yeah. Uh, when you like take a step back and like think about her plight and what she's going through, yeah, it's it's pretty rough. Because we only see two normal-looking people who are considered ugly. Mm-hmm. So she day in and day out, she must be surrounded by millions of people. She lives in the city, so clearly. Yeah, so to to be like that day in and day out and mm-hmm. feel that way, I could feel it. It was like taxing on me. Yeah. It it makes me uncomfortable. I've seen this. This might be the one episode I've seen the most. You know, I'm willing to bet that for me as well. It's top five for the ones that I've seen the most of. And I have, I don't know, do you know who directed it? Uh, I can pull it up. Because how he directed it. It was directed by Douglas Hayes. Douglas, Douglas Hayes. He did a bunch. He did a couple of the other ones we've already watched. The I'm way he shot it. Sure. The way he shot it and the way he like he used the light to tell the story and dark. <sighs> he also directed The Invaders, which is one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes. We Anyways, haven't continue. gotten to your favorite yet. No, we haven't. Um. So the way he just shot this and paced it like this. They're all they're all twenty four minutes long, but this mm-hmm. felt the shortest. It it I one hundred percent agree with that. This felt the shortest, and I think that's partially because of it's just like three scenes. It's like three or four scenes mm-hmm. that are just all dialogue driven, and it's it clips right along. So there's no like downtime or plotting or anything like that. It felt super briskly paced because it goes from the hospital room to the nurses' station, yep. back to the hospital room, then to the doctor's office. Office. The removal of the bandages. Well, there's one nurse. There's another nurse's station sequence where the, where the screen drops down. And, and we you see don't the, see anything. Yep. Yeah. And, and then the bandage removal. And then the chase. Yep. Um, and the chase scene. That one. Yeah. That's that good. So, so the thing I want to talk about. So we were talking mentioning earlier that the last couple that we've watched had relatively larger casts because they're in a town for some of it and they're walking around and you're seeing a bunch of people. This one is a smaller piece. It's just mostly two or three characters talking at a time. Mm-hmm. And so it felt a lot more intimate like that. It's a much more of a character piece, which is impressive because you don't even see anyone's faces. So this is all done through voice and body acting. You don't get to see like the emotion on anyone's face because you don't see any faces until the very end. There are six people in total. Mm-hmm. And then there are background actors. Yeah, which is just... Who I'm pretty sure they recycled some of the same actors over and over again. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, they all looked the same, so I'm sure yeah. that happened. And then I think there's one person for the great dictator. Yeah. Um, so probably seven people mm-hmm. in total are in this episode. And considering the last... Oh, there drop, goes drop. the batteries. Um, considering the last people, uh, the last two episodes we did, there's like 15 to 20. At least. So, I mean, it's... It, this it, feels like a standard Twilight Zone episode This to me is in more that. intimate. Yes. Like, everything about this is intimate. In the dialogue, I mean, we talked about... Sterling's dialogue all the time, but mm-hmm. the dialogue for this episode is, I don't want to say it's on the nose, 
but it's just so personal because mm-hmm. I feel like this is how everyone feels at some point in their life. Yep. This is how everyone feels like probably when they're a teenager becoming an adult. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They don't feel like they don't fit in. They feel like they don't belong. Type of deal. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, probably when you're transitioning from middle school into high school would be mm-hmm. a great time to watch this episode. And after you graduate college and you feel yeah. like you're not getting Nothing's a job. going on. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, um, I really liked the just the way that the dialogue handled setting up the world because something like this, when you're first watching it, you're going in with your preconceived notions that this is a standard world. Mm -hmm. Like this is just a woman having a surgery to make herself look good. And then they start slipping in things like, well, this is your 11th time. This is your ninth time doing this, right? She's like, it's actually my 11th. And the doctor's like, Oh, 11's the limit. And so you start thinking like limit for what? Like, this is, what are we exactly talking about? And he's like, after this, we're going to have to, that's all the state allows you. We're going to have to send you away more or less. Like, so she's, she's getting talked about putting into a concentration camp. I think she calls it a ghetto at one point. She's like, you're going to put me into a ghetto. Um, so like the world building done through the dialogue felt more or less natural. There was one point where she was like, what's going to happen to me? And he was like, you know, what's going to happen to you. Yeah. This is the thing. She's like, just tell me. But I, I feel like it, it's not going to be like a ghetto. I feel it's going to be like more like, a utopia. Like, I 100% believe it's going to be like a beautiful place that she's going to love. But she's describing it as a ghetto because that she's going to be surrounded by ugly people that she's going to hate because that's what she's been conditioned, conditioned to. Yep. One thing, she should have just lied because they're like, oh, it's your ninth, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> because if the doctor who's doing it didn't know this, then they probably don't know it at the at the actual... Yeah, who, who kept records back then? Yeah. No I mean, one. No one did. They didn't have computers. They... Exactly. It was all Rolodexes and stuff. So just do it two more times. Go Deal above. with it. <laughs> Technology in this episode is weird. I mean, you're right. They don't have any computers. There was nothing like that. Um, but they had these like drop-down flat-screen TVs that were um, like holographic yeah. from the looks of it. Get her! That was good. Yeah. So every the nurses, the way the nurses talk about her like everyone feels like an actual doctor like Mm -hmm. he has the bedside manner down he cares about his patients they're awful the nurses are awful. oh yeah they're terrible the nurses are really bad they're like making fun of her behind her back she's so ugly if i looked like that i would what what, if she looked if i looked like that i would take a nap in a grave or something like that something i would kill myself is more or less what she was implying but she didn't come out and directly say that well, we can't all look like Steve Buscemi like you people. <laughs> I wish. No, I'm kidding. But um, th- I liked the scene where the doctor was talking to his nurse and he was having like an existential crisis about it because he's like, I'm trying to help this person. Who are we to say like what's beautiful and what isn't? Why can't she try to live a normal life? I've seen her face. And the, woman, the nurse is like, yeah, she's gross. And he's like, no, I've seen the face beneath that face. She's a beautiful person. She's a good person. She's got a good heart. Exactly. She should be allowed to, to live a normal life. You see, nurse, I've, I've looked underneath those bandages. So have I. It's horrible. No, I mean deeper than that. Deeper than that pitiful, twisted lump of flesh. Deeper even than that misshapen skeletal mask. I've seen that woman's real face, nurse. The face of her real self. 
It's a good face. It's a human face. And the nurse in that scene, it just felt like she was trying to, like, sleep with him. She's like, oh, we should get your mind off of this. You shouldn't think about it so much. Don't let it bug you. Zip. <laughs> Flop. <laughs> yeah. But, and then, like, because then they go into, like, well, you're, you're, you're speaking treason, doctor. And he's like, I know I'm speaking treason. Like, that... When you add in the layer of, like, a dystopian future like that and, like, a dictatorship, it makes it so much more creepy and just unsettling. Yeah. More than it already is. Right. And uh, do you know who played the doctor? His name isn't available to click on on um, Wikipedia, but it's William D. Gordon. Uh, that's yeah, it's just... I mean, he sounded like... I mean, I guess this is what all men sounded like in the in the the pictures back then. But he sounded like I don't know, almost like the guy who does Space Ghost Coast to Coast. Like he had that type of like, and oh, then nurse, we're Gary going Owens. to do this. Yeah, Gary and nurse, Owens. we're going to do this. He sounded very similar to that like s- delivery. Yep. But I think that's because of the time period. Gary Owens just died. Oh, so, that's too bad. Yeah. Um, Space Ghost. It's your own fault. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so. The the doctor in this, in my opinion, is the only good person. Like, is the only one who understands I agree. people. Yep. Even um, Janet doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. And well, I don't blame her for that though, because she's grown up more or less like a pariah in society's eyes. Like she's been uh, outcast from birth. So I mean, I, I it's hard to put blame on her because that's what she's been shaped right, into. Right. Right. The only other person I think who who gets it is a uh, handsome McDreamboat. Yes. Yeah. Uh, That's what he's credited <laughs> as, actually. Yeah, yeah. The fourth Franco brothers. Because <laughs> uh, there's three Franco brothers, and they all look alike. This guy looked like a Franco. Maybe it's their, maybe it's their dad. Probably, <laughs> or granddad. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so. No one truly gets society. I feel like this is the best example of you don't understand society, but you're forced to live in it. Mm -hmm. And the whole no one. I think she even says one time, like, I never asked to be born. I never asked for this. I this is not what I wanted. I just want to be like everyone else. And every time she says that, like, it's not that I, I get sad. It's that. What type of life must that be? And how yeah, did, that has got to be a nightmare. How did Rod Serling know to write this way and know to write like this? Because the stuff he writes about, this man was genius level. Like yeah, and I I never understood how his mind worked. This is gonna sound ignorant, but around what time? This is around the time of like Martin Luther King Jr. Right? That was like sixty four. Am I making that up? It's in the sixties. Well, this was season two, so this, this was... Is, this, is not, this came out in 60. Oh, but, okay. like, so this is, like, pre the, the civil rights movement, correct? When was segregation ended? Like, when was, like, the, the uh, school stuff? Like, the people, the, the, the black students who were admitted to the I, school? I believe that was 65. 65. I, I think uh, it's in that area. Uh, whenever Selma... So, uh, Kennedy died in 63, 64. Mm-hmm. Johnson became president. And it was... I think it was into his... The end of his first term before his second term. Yep. When all of, when all of that happened. All that so stuff happened. So so this probably is probably sixty six. So this is pre. This is nineteen sixty. So like Rod Serling, like touching on the concept of like 
this style of acceptance, this style of accepting people not for how they look on the outside and who they are as a character and who they are as a person. The eye, very similar to I have a dream that like that my children won't be judged by the color of their skin. So this is the outward appearance. So that he's, I don't know if, I don't know the climate back then, but it sounds like he's like five or six years ahead of the curve. Well, that, him and Gene Roddenberry. Like, exactly. They, yeah. they were all, imagine if they got together, if, Gene Roddenberry mm-hmm. and Rod Serling and Martin Luther King. <laughs> like, imagine if they got together and mm-hmm. they just wrote a movie. Yeah, that would have been aw- like that would have been like the most progressive thing of the time. Oh, and, and so Dalton that- Trumbo, who was um, that's who Brian Cranston played in Trumbo. Oh yes, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, imagine if like Trumbo and Serling and Roddenberry got together and they just wrote a series every week. That'd been amazing. That would. Because it would cover communism, racism, oh, prejudice and stuff like that. Oh, so good. Let's build the time machine, Dwight. <laughs> uh, so Janet is begging and begging the doctor to just remove the take the bandages, take off. the bandages off. It's like, well, it's three days too early, but eh, why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fine. <laughs> okay. And the the sequence where they take off the bandages is were you getting claustrophobic? Uh, I wasn't getting claustrophobic, but the tension was mounting yeah. for me. Like I don't really do, do get claustrophobic very much, but the it's so slowly paced. It's so like the tension is perfectly built because they like remove a, like they explain how they're going to do it. They remove a couple of the bandages and then they like stop before the last one and they have like a conversation of like if you don't get fixed, you're going to have to go away and all that type of stuff. And it's just so well paced and edited and handled it was awesome and i noticed this time what made me uncomfortable as a kid i always thought that her skin was like cut but i oh because of the way they had like the mouth and everything how they had the the bandage on the bottom i never noticed it was a bandage i always thought like she had like like her jaw was just open constantly or something i thought that 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 she had like a misaligned jaw (laughs) and that that's everyone else yeah yeah just a bit (laughs) So, watching this again and during the bandage scene, no, I knew that it was going to end up being Ellie mm-hmm. May. Yeah. And just knowing that her life is not going to be what she wants, I get so sad. Yeah, it's very depressing. Because he, I, I feel like he wants her to be normal, too. The, um, the doctor. The doctor? Oh, definitely. He, not for the reasons that everyone else does. Not for the reasons like, oh, I don't want her to be a freak anymore. Everyone wants her to be normal for their own aesthetic reasons. They're like, I don't want to look at her. He wants her to be normal so she can be happy. Right. And that's... Oh, man, Rod. <laughs> right in the feels. He just kicks you right in the biscuits. Roughly, over and over again with a monkey. Or the, with a pig nose. Yeah. So so when, she's, when she actually runs away, I never understood... Maybe you can explain it to me. Why does she run away? I, I'm assuming that her emotions have just gotten the better of her. Because like, it's not like she can go anywhere. As soon as you get out on the street, people are going to be like, that woman's deformed. Get her. But like, I always thought she, she was scared of, of seeing the people as pig nose. When I was younger, I thought that's what it was. But I think it's just that she's so just mad that she's going to be taken away. Or right. she's so scared that she's going to be taken away that she just panics. That's my assumption. And it does feel... Because then it becomes like... Not a witch hunt, but it becomes like a, um, a man hunt. Like they yeah. come... They, so people start chasing you and then that just compounds your fear. Right. And... Uh, so when he finally 
confronts her. Like, the only person who she should say, because, like, doesn't one of the nurses say, like, quiet you or, like, like... Uh, maybe. I don't remember. But the the only person who should be talking and actually does a good job is the doctor. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He's and, the only one who had compassion. And the, his speech at the end... When he introduces her to Handsome McStedmuffin. Yep. I'm just going to keep changing. That's fine. I, I, he d- doesn't have like a legitimate name. <laughs> Dreamy McJawface. Um, He's called Walter Smith, but who cares? <laughs> Handsome McStedmuffin. Yes. Guy McFacer, dude. <laughs> when he explains to her, well, it's not going to be that bad for you. I just picture it cutting to like a Frankie Avalon and that Funicello like beach party movie. <laughs> like, or... Uh, well, he's going to be your uncle, and this is going to be your cousin Jethro. <laughs> it turns into the Beverly Hillbillies. That would be amazing. If, like, they send her away, and she gets sent to the Beverly Hillbillies farm, and then it just, like, goes into that. <laughs> Golly, they got one of them fancy cement ponds. Oh, let's go get some Texas tea. <laughs> so, the whole the whole episode is the most gothic, I think. Would you say In terms that? of lighting, yeah, definitely, yeah. which it has to be for to achieve the reveal at the end. I feel like this is what CBS wanted the original Batman's the original Batman series to feel <laughs> like and look like, and then we got you know, which we'll probably end up doing at some point, yeah, the 1966 Batman series. But this felt like this almost felt like a comic book. It it felt yeah, like, it felt like an old horror comic, like um. Uh, I don't remember what they, it reminded the me a lot like of that, or... um, uh, the nineteen eighty six run of The Crow. I've never read that. Oh, that's one of my favorites. I love mm-hmm. The Crow. Um, but the way that they they designed it, the origin story of The Crow, mm-hmm. um, which the movie is based on, the shots are very similar. The upward angles, the mm-hmm. um, Dutch angles, and then the whole chase scene even even when they transition from everything being in black Mm -hmm. to color it still feels like that shadow cool it for me it felt like that that was hanging over it because Mm -hmm. i mean it's that same thing like when you're alone in the dark and someone comes in and they're like you've been in the dark all day and turn the light on you're like ah (laughs) yeah i know exactly yeah (laughs) and that's what this episode felt like uh, you said when you first saw it, you were scared of the pig nose people. I was because the first time I saw it, um, I, I don't know if I've already said this today, but I didn't fully, I didn't realize the tricks that they were doing and not showing me their faces because there's a couple of times that you see, you see Rod Serling's face. And so that like, I know he's not a part of the story. He's the narrator. So you don't, I didn't associate that with not seeing everyone else's faces. And then you there's times where you see them face. in, you see her bandaged face a lot, but you also see like their faces in shadows and it looked normal to me. And so I just, my mind filled in that there were no faces there. Um, so when the pig faces were revealed, it blew my mind. I was like, Oh my God, she looks normal. They're ugly. And like the message slammed home for me because i was like oh i get it like exactly <laughs> the, that's exactly what it was <laughs> ah that hurt my like, brain I, I feel dumb now watching it because it's like they're obviously it's like well duh not showing the faces so yeah exactly that the, the twist is telegraphed but i forget i was like eight nine or ten didn't pick up on that i mean this this is a perfect episode for me but what they could have done that made it better is 
what um, the Coens do sometimes where they just show from the forehead to the bridge of the nose mm. so you see the eyes. And those were normal, so that would have worked out well. Yeah, so mm-hmm. if they if they did that, that would have been better. <laughs> and if they had like one line, like a Simpsons-esque line, like, oh man, the lights are off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the uh, Sorry, sorry uh, Janet, uh, uh, there's a blackout. Yeah, or like yeah, they explained it away. Oh, the monsters were due on Maple Street, and they turned off all our electricity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this this um, I, I'm reading about this right now. This was based on a short story, actually. By Sterling? Um, no. Uh, uh, no. The episode was written. It's based on. No, it was okay. Yeah. This episode was written by Serling, who recycled the theme for a later teleplay. No, just kidding. No, he wrote it at original. Oh, cool. Just kidding. This is all. But this one, it reminded me of a story by, I think it was Richard Matheson. Um, very, very similar to this, where in the future, everyone had to be equal. Mm-hmm. So if you were beautiful, you had to wear a bag over your face. If you were exceptionally smart, you would have to get an implant in your head that would, every 30 seconds, um, blast a like a, a high-pitched tone so you couldn't concentrate on things so it would bring your intelligence down to the level of other people if you were physically strong they would attach all these weights to you and you would like so you would be not no stronger than everyone else and it ends with um two and people then they all blew their brains out no you're very close because it ends with people these two people breaking into like a television studio like removing all their weights and like being like perfect on screen for everyone and then they get executed on national television for being different and but everyone forgets about it because of blah. but it's that type of dystopian future which is what this reminded me of now because of the whole dictator guy making everyone look identical is just messed up and it removes all the individuality of the people and that's where like the whole serling like war military like because he did serve in world war ii so mm-hmm. like uh, a dictatorship like Hitler. <laughs> like, I feel like, like <laughs> we, we've, we've mentioned Hitler so many times True. That for this month. Um, but I feel like the whole having to fight in World War II and deal with a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And he's always been a huge fan of George Orwell. Yeah. So combining those themes to create like this society that isn't perfect at all mm-hmm. because they're not. Yes. They're actually... The, in my opinion, these people, with the exception of the doctor, are the lowest common denominator because anyone who treats anyone else less than the way they would treat themselves yeah. is awful. Especially, like, this woman more or less is disabled. Like, I mean, it's, 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 it's a physical disablement, but and it doesn't affect her, like, day-to-day life, like, operating herself, but it's still technically a disablement, so... Yeah, those people are just, like, horrible people. Because would they be this way to someone who's blind? Exactly. Probably. Or, or like, deaf? Like, yeah. Yeah. They're pieces of crap. At least people to death, it doesn't matter if they're deaf because they can't hear you making fun of them. So that's a big whatever. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> unless they sign. <laughs> unless they use sign language to talk. Well, yeah, the sign language would just be a big middle finger. <laughs> I'm messing with everyone. I'm joking. <laughs> but anyways. So... Let, let's go through the the last two that we did. Okay. So in in the grand scheme of theme themes in the grand scheme of things. Well, there are themes. Yes. Uh, is this better or worse than Walking Distance? That's a hard one because these are two different different types of episodes. Walking Distance is more of like a a wistful remembrance, and it's like a hopeful and optimistic one. Whereas this one's more of like a 
shining the mirror. This is um, I compare this to more the monsters you do on Maple Street, where they are shining a are you know, shining a light on like humanity's darker side. Um, do I I so I I honestly can't compare this one to to Walking Distance. I like this one. I enjoy watching this one more than I enjoy walking wa- watching Walking Distance, but I like them both for different reasons. Right. I feel the same way, but I do I I like watching this one just upsets me more mm-hmm. because it makes me realize this is how our society is. Yeah. And even back in 1960 and things haven't changed at all. At like, all. Like it's it's really depressing. I mean, yeah. everyone like things are arguably better for a lot of groups of people, but this type of not racism, but this type of discrimination still exists. Seventy thirty. <laughs> That's the sad part. Uh, so, in terms of that, if I were to have to pick one to watch every single day mm-hmm. of the three we did, I would probably do Walking Distance. So I, because <laughs> that's fair. Monsters that the monsters that are due on Maple Street mm-hmm. is just so jarring. Yeah, because when it really shows the the intentions of people deep down inside. Mm-hmm. And this lets you know the intentions of people right away. This one at least has that glimmer of hope. This one has a redeeming character in the doctor. Like he's at least a redeemable person. And yeah. um handsome McDreamy at the end there. <laughs> he seems like a good person. Um Monster Two on Maple Street, everyone is a terrible person killing each other by the end of it. So yeah, there's really no redeeming factors in that one. Yeah, and then so now we are at Studley Mick uh, washboard. Yes. <laughs> And so yeah, so as she's running around the hospital, she ends up running into someone else who also has a physical deformity, and he's gross. He just looks just like her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and even she, when she sees him, you can tell she's like, oh. I see. I I got it that she was disgusted by him. Really? I thought she was like, oh, this guy's disgustingly gross because that's what she's been taught to think is gross. Well, but like like I, it felt like for me like. Her mouth is saying no, but her eyes are saying yes. Well, that's just uh, the actress probably <laughs> melting <laughs> yeah, over. That's just Don McDreamy. <laughs> that's just Miss Ellie May. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Walter, uh, she actually finally talks mm-hmm. um, without the bandages, and she only says one line. Yeah, but it's basically, "How do I live this way? Mm-hmm. And how can I deal with this?" And he says, well, there's this very, very, very old saying. It's like, how far into the future is this? <laughs> that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Mr. Smith. Yes. Why do we have to look like this? I don't know, Miss Tyler. I really don't know. But you know something? It doesn't matter. There's an old saying. A very, very old saying. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. When we leave here, when we go to the village, try to think of that, Miss Tyler. Say it over and over to yourself. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And it's like, thanks, guys. That's the name of the episode. <laughs> yeah. I got it. <laughs> and and they say it like four times before <laughs> the episode. Before the credits end. Yeah. <laughs> Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Because I think Serling says it again, too, in his yep. closing monologue. Yeah, his closing monologue is pretty good. With this one, 
this actually, this podcast is probably going to be faster than the rest of them because this one. Well, not not to be like blah about Twilight Zone, but we're doing four episodes of Twilight Zone back to back to back to back. There's only so much we can say that's original about the Twilight Zone in general and the like, episodes exactly. Yeah, but so I do much. I do have a lot to say about our next episode. That's good. Um, but this one. Going back to when we've talked about like the famous people that they got to be on the show before they were famous. Mm-hmm. This is a good example of that. With because Ellen Maxine Stewart, she actually was a famous actress. She was in Private Benjamin. Mm-hmm. And she was... I thought I thought that she was uh, actually the woman in Titanic, but she wasn't. That's Gloria Stewart. Ah, yes. Very um, good. Yes. I think it's like her sister or something. Probably. Uh, but, say. but when I saw Maxine Stewart, when you said that, I was like, Private Benjamin? Maxine Stewart? <laughs> and yeah, it was her. And she recently died like three years ago. Yeah, she did. She was alive. Nin- she was 94. Jesus. Good for her. Wow. She did it. So, and and then you have um, Donna Douglas, who is Ellie Mae. But this was before Ellie Mae. Right, and that's, that's yeah, my point. I feel like Rod Serling was that, like, Simon Cowell. He, like found the stars yep. because in the episode a- after this one Shatner yep is that Shirley MacLaine um, no that's the next one calm down we'll get there no no uh not the one where oh the- yeah oh, no I no the, yeah, yeah. the actual uh, let me find out continue talking so uh he has this way of like making stars Patricia Breslin um okay well Patricia Breslin's famous too um but he has a way of like finding stars and making stars out of people and giving them a shot. Because even Shatner said like no one would give him a shot. Well, obviously, because it's William Shatner. Yeah. <laughs> they said come, that come the way I talk was uneasy. <laughs> and Rod said, give him a shot. So we have Rod Serling to blame for that. Thanks, buddy. But then uh, in the last episode, we had Academy Award winner Gig Young and Oscar nominee Frank Overton. <laughs> like... <laughs> I mean, Serling was this, like, miracle finder. He found great actors. He's insanely good at this. Oh, Burgess Meredith was in, like, a million... I think that Burgess Meredith was already famous at that point. He was a famous theater actor. Oh, okay, but not a film actor? Yeah, it's like Chris Cooper. Chris Cooper was a famous play actor. I think you mean Bradley Cooper. Well, I'm kidding. (laughs) Well, Bradley Cooper was also a theater actor, too, (laughs) before David Wayne found him. Oh. Um, but Chris Cooper was like a, a really well known in the theater, mm-hmm. and uh, Spike Jones put him in adaptation, and he won an Oscar. Where Burgess Meredith was a famous theater actor, and Rod Serling was like, "I like your moxie. Get on stage. Get in the." Film. <laughs> I uh, like the cut of your jib. <laughs> I like the cut of your jib. So, do you have a favorite actor who's ever guest starred on the Twilight Zone? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Nah. Um, I guess it probably would be Burgess Meredith because uh, I'm not, I don't know, I don't know that many actors and actresses from this time period. I'm really bad with actors and actresses, period, unless like they're in something that I absolutely love and love right. them. Um, so other than that, um, there was an episode where the, is it Dick York? Who was the first Darren? Dick York or Dick Sargent? Dick York. Dick York. Dick York did a guest on, or was on one of the episodes, and I loved his episode. So really? he, he did really well. Uh, the one that I always think of, um, Rod Taylor, 
who uh, was also the voice of um, Pongo in okay. 101 Donations. And yep. he was in the astronaut one. Which the, one? The, There's like 70 astronaut it, ones. Okay, I should say the, the one... Um, the shoot the moon one where it's the three astronauts then there's two astronauts oh, okay yep 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 and i always loved him on that one because he was the one who was going crazy mm-hmm. his friends were disappearing and everything yeah. and so i i always loved when they got a guest star like that i think it's called a shot an arrow into the air yes Is that what that one's called no or something has returned flight nine has returned continue uh okay <laughs> But this one, I actually liked that what they did with uh, Ellie May. I'm not going to call her Donna Douglas. I, I love what they did with Ellie May because that was clever. Because hold on, we got we got a motorcycle people. Um, because they weren't going to give her a line, and then yeah. she's, she's like, "I can do it." And I, I bet I bet Rod Serling was like, "She can do it. Film her. We'll allow it." Yeah, type of deal. And she actually did a really good impression. I 100 percent agree. For like. And when the sky was opened is the and name when the, the sky one was I'm thinking. Okay. You're, you're thinking of. Yeah. So, for me, her scared performance was similar to Rod Taylor's. I can see that. So, yeah, for me, this this is a perfect episode. So, how many... Do you want to get to the bagels, or...? Sure, if you want to talk more. <laughs> sure. Well, I'm saying, like, if you... Do you have more... Like, what? how many bagels are in this one for you? Oh, this is a full basket for Oh, me. okay. Because... I mean, I, I could take some out for the shadow, for, mm-hmm. like, not showing the faces, but that's just, the mind is a nightmare. Yeah. Like, for me, when I first saw this, when I was younger, trying to figure out why they're not showing the faces, just left so many questions, and it was just a nightmare in my yep. head. So, that's why this is a full basket for mm-hmm. me, because... The human mind is a nightmare. <laughs> yes, it is. You get trapped in there. Uh, I want to be clear with my last couple of ratings. Um, in my opinion, the other two that we did were like perfect examples of things. And I was really kind of nitpicking when I was taking off ba- uh, bagels from, from the basket. Because like this stuff is so much better than the average. Oh. Like if, if we're comparing this and like... Small wonder. Uh, yeah. Twilight Zone has 40 ba- bagels and Small Wonder has ne- negative three. Like, it's no comparison. So when I'm saying I'm taking out bagels and I'm doing stuff, I'm just comparing it to other Twilight Zones. You know what I mean? Like, right, it's in right, a different right. comparison. I mean, I, I don't want because I know I've gave, gave, given other things, like, higher or equal to. Mm-hmm. This is better than those things. Right. Like, I just want to say that. No, that's fine. So, so this is also a 12 for me because... Some of the camera stuff was very telegraphing, and it drew attention to the fact that they weren't showing faces, which uh, jumped out at me. It jumps out at me every time I review it more and more. But that's just because I've seen this episode forty times, right? Like, and and to add on to what you were saying about you know other episodes we did, mm-hmm. I'm gonna make a ringtone for when you call me. Okay, you saying when I say to you. Would you recommend Bebe's kids? No! (laughs) (laughs) Of course I wouldn't. But I still think I gave that like a six or something. I don't remember how you gave that like a three. Three, okay, I don't remember. Or two. I've blocked that out of my memory. But to add on, like, this is just in. We're in Twilight Zone month, so this (laughs) is like stacking Twilight Zone against itself. Exactly, which is unfair, in my opinion. Not, not, Not unfair, but it's unfair to compare this to 
lesser media. Right. It's unfair to that other media because mm. this thing is so good. Right. <laughs> lesser forms of art. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, we did some really good stuff. Like, we did Simpsons and we exactly. did... Exactly. I think we gave the that op- perfect scores. Yeah. Which, which makes sense. We, we took off some for The Office. Pro- yeah. Yeah. Which, no, makes sense. I like I like Twilight Zone more than I like The Office. Yeah. I like Twilight Zone a lot more oh, than I like We Twilight gave a mother. ton of bagels. We didn't take that many out for Fresh Prince. Yeah. Which, this is so much better than Fresh Prince. Like, that's what I'm trying to say. Is like, <laughs> How dare you? Will Willard Smith Jr. and Quincy Jones have worked so hard on getting their hip-hop show on the air. That's fair, but it's no Twilight <laughs> Zone. <laughs> I, I would love for Rod Serling to be looking down from heaven and be like, No, he's right. Fresh Prince is better than Twilight Zone. <laughs> that would be an amazing hot take. I would like that interview. That would be an amazing Twilight Zone episode. So, Scott, what do you think my favorite Twilight Zone episode is? Because uh, I have it. Uh, to be fair, my my favorite one, it shifts um, so it much. A, but the one it's it's the one that I like watching the most. Is it an obscure one? I don't, I it, don't think so. I don't think one? it's obscure. I think it's pretty famous. Uh, I've seen it a lot on marathons. Is Burgess Meredith in it? <laughs> no, he's okay. not. Um, oh, let me think. Let me just make sure that I have the is, right. I don't think me, he's in it. Let me let me try to guess. Okay. Uh, let's do this twenty question style. Is okay. it in season two or three? I'm a. That's not how twenty questions work. Twenty questions is a yes or no. Oh, fine. <laughs> is it in season two? No. Three. Yes. Okay. Uh, so. That's two questions. This is a fun game. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'm going to say, I'm trying to remember season three. Is it the one with the little boy with the powers? The wishes? No, that oh. one's good, though. Uh, if we're guessing actual episodes, I'm only going to give you three guesses for actual episodes. Okay. So that's one actual episode. Okay. Um, season five was Terry Ed. 25,000 feet, so that's not it. Correct. Uh, I'm stumped. Um, there are only two people in the episode. Oh. oh. Is this the Charles Bronson Elizabeth Montgomery one? No. Um, that's a good one, though. Yeah. The people who are in it are Jonathan Winters and Jack Klugman. Oh, I know which one you're talking about, but I can't remember the name. What happens in it? Can you remember uh, what happens in it? Uh, is this the one that's kind of like waiting for Godot? Kind uh, of. No, not oh, really. Oh, I'm thinking of a different one. Um, In this one, it's it's about two people playing a game of pool. Oh. And it's called a game of pool. Yeah. <laughs> it, I like a game of pool. A game of pool is the episode that if I'm going to like watch an episode of the Twilight Zone, it's a game of pool. Is that this game the one, is, uh, episode is brilliant. Is this the one where um, uh, Winters is trying to hustle Klugman? Uh, kind of. Klugman um, is for a, a soul, right? It it does be kind. It's kind of for a soul. Uh, Klugman is an amazing pool player, and he's like he can beat and beat the the pants off of anyone else who plays pool. But he's lamenting the fact that ah, I never got a chance to play Fats Brown. If I'd gotten to play Fats, then I could prove to everyone that I'm the best po- uh, pool player. And then Fats shows up, and so he's come back from the dead to play a game of pool, and it's more or less for um, Klugman's soul because. If Klugman beats Fats, then he becomes he's going to become the greatest pool player of all time. So, long story short, Klugman wins. Like, Fats throws the game, uh, lets Klugman win, and it's all about, like, becoming the best and becoming immortalized. And at the end of it, Klugman is now 
in a, a white room waiting zone and he's called to play games of pool against all the other people who are summoning his soul to like think he's the best. And it's just, but it's, it's similar to this episode we just watched where it's all dialogue driven and it's all, it's just two people talking to each other and it's fascinating and it's built around the, the game of pool. So you're able to get interesting shots and stuff like that. It's my favorite. It's so good. And that was a great buildup because I let it, slip right away that the seller's my favorite true exactly uh, that's why i wanted to make it more of a fun game yeah i mean the seller's my favorite because as i said before it shows how awful people are but mm-hmm. also uh this is going back to like fresh prince where i i always thought uncle phil was right because he was always prepared where i like the seller because i was like he was right he shouldn't let you in he was prepared you guys didn't do your job <laughs> Like, because I would be that guy. I'd be, they're like, what are you doing? Ah, building a bomb shelter. You know, like you do. (laughs) So, I mean, also, that's another dialogue-based one. I I love, I love the dialogue-based episodes, but I also love the ones when people act and do horrible things. Like, and they go to really dark places. Like, basically, they doom everyone in the cellar and they break down the door. (laughs) So, yeah. So good. A game of pool. I haven't seen that in almost it's so good. ten years. It's so good. So yeah. Uh, but well, that's not what we're doing next week. No, no, we are doing. Uh, what are we doing next week, Dwight? I don't know, Scott. Why don't you tell me what's in the box? What's in the box, Scott? What's in the box? Is it a TV? It might be. A TV's in the box. Th- this one is. Uh, I I can't remember if this one ha- is the one that has the the sentimental vibe to it or okay or if it's a it's been so long since i saw it but this is from the last season yes because we've been doing so many from the first couple early of seasons. seasons yep so yeah we're going towards the end of the series so uh yeah you can watch you can uh, we didn't even say you can watch all of these on netflix oh yeah and if you don't and it gets taken off of netflix dwight and i are gonna blame you yeah exactly it's your fault we're gonna put you on blast yep jerks so, so uh until next time I'm Scott Gerland. I'm Dwight Stearns. Smell you later. Bye.